0: episode 369 what's up with specialty pharmacy bagging today i speak with keith hartman
1: american healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking relentlessly
0: seeking value Last week's show was an encore episode with Dr. Aaron Mitchell, and we talked about buy and bill. To continue our exploration of specialty pharmacy intrigue, let's talk about so-called bagging. I wanted to get an overview of all of the different kinds of specialty pharmacy bagging. Bagging is a big deal. If you have anything to do with trying to control pharmacy costs or the clinical outcomes of specialty pharmacy patients, you too are going to want to understand what's going on here with bagging. I was thrilled to have a chance to chat with Keith Hartman, who is my guest today. He is the CEO of Continuum RX. He's a pharmacist by education and has been in the pharmacy space for over 25 years now, touching just about every aspect of pharmacy from retail operations to long-term care and and now most recently, home infusion. This makes him an ideal person to chat with about this topic, and FYI, it was not easy to find someone to do so to clearly see the actions and reactions going on here. Because that's what this is all about, actions and reactions. How any self-respecting market distortion is going to cause a cascade of equal and opposite market distortions. So let's cruise through the whole infused slash injected specialty pharmacy historical play by play, shall we? It's like a who's on first routine, except very, very not funny. So here we go. This is, of course, the semi-reductive abridged version. But let's do this thing. Once upon a time, the bagging story starts in ye olden days, meaning more than 10 years ago. Before specialty pharmacy drugs really became the massive profit centers for any party who can manage to get their fingers in the specialty pharmacy cookie jar. In these ancient and halcyon times, brown bagging was kind of a modus operandi. Don't forget, we're talking about infused or injectable drugs here, especially ones that need to be infused or injected in the provider's office. So brown bagging means and meant when a specialty pharmacy drug is shipped directly to a patient or a patient goes and picks up the specialty pharmacy drug at the pharmacy. Doc takes out prescription pad, this is in ye olden days, remember, and writes out the Rx. Patient picks up the drug from the pharmacy, which may be handed to them in a brown bag, get it? But then they take that brown bag, as it were, to their doctor's office. The doctor takes the drug out of the brown bag and infuses or injects it. I say doctor's office because many times in the olden days, that's where this went down. And this brown bagging had some issues for sure, but specialty pharmacy drugs really weren't all that big a thing, either dollar wise or frequency wise. At some point in our story here, pharma manufacturers start seeing just exactly how much money the market will bear for specialty pharmacy drugs. And the prices of these specialty drugs go through the roof. At the same time, for a bunch of reasons I actually discussed with Dr. Bruce Rector in episode 300, a whole bunch of these specialty pharmacy drugs start hitting the market all at once. So these drugs have skyrocketing prices and there's lots of them. At this point, some, certainly not all, but enough CFOs at provider organizations were like, wowza, epiphany, light bulb moment. There's a lot of money that can be made here because buy and bill. In buy bill, which I talked about last week with Dr. Aaron Mitchell, in buy-in bill, provider organizations get reimbursed the cost of the drug plus some percentage when they administer it meaning the more expensive the drug, the more money a provider can make because a percentage of a bigger number is, of course, a bigger number. Add to that a party-sized container of other provider shenanigans to maximize revenue on specialty pharmacy patients, and that revenue got bigger every single year. A recent report just came out that on average for oncology drugs, some providers are making six times the cost of the drug. Six times the cost of a drug that can cost lots of zeros. Just wow, six X, that's real money. This is winning the lottery every single time a patient needing a specialty drug shows up on your doorstep. Continuing the tale here, this buy and bill health system, extreme greed hits employers in their pocketbooks. And of course, plan sponsors start desperately seeking relief. Who rides up on a white horse? PBMs, of course, pharmacy benefit managers. PBMs say that they will negotiate with drug companies and buy the drugs on behalf of the plan sponsors for much cheaper. Then they will ship the drugs purchased to the provider organizations. Thus, the plan sponsor only needs to pay providers to administer the drug, not that and some crazy markup on the drug itself. Ladies and gentlemen, white bagging has entered the building. White bagging is when the drug is not shipped directly to the patient, a la brown bagging. It is when the drug is shipped to the provider. But wait, there's more to the story than a grand PBM gesture of goodwill. They see how much money the employers are used to paying providers for these drugs and realize that the PBM only needs to come in with a price that's less than that at least at the beginning. So over the years, weird stuff starts happening with rebates on these specialty drugs. Listen to the show with Scott Haas. That's episode 365 for more on that. But bottom line, white bagging becomes not exactly a mecca of cost savings. PBMs are, as we all know, not known for their ability to moderate their profitability after all. At this point in our story, let's just pause to say that provider organizations are very, very, very not happy with this whole white bagging intervention. Not only did a piece of the provider specialty pharmacy cash cow get snatched by the PBMs, but there are also clinical issues with white bagging that we talk about on the show today. And some of these issues are not BS. Do not get me wrong. They are very real and I do not want to minimize them. And so provider organizations start to stand up their own hospital specialty pharmacies because then at least they can get some of the white bagging chitching. See what I mean? Plan sponsor health plan mandates that the drug be filled in a pharmacy hospital owns the pharmacy or part of the pharmacy. And now they have so-called clear bagging. Clear bagging is when one organization owns the pharmacy. And the provider who will administer the drug clear bagging solves some of the clinical issues with white bagging and the hospital also gets to take a cut. I'd be remiss not to mention here that some hospitals have worked very hard on their clear bagging programs and definitely have tried to improve the quality of service here. You're going to have to listen to the show today to hear about gold bagging and also the latest developments in this whole war. Employers and patients and taxpayers are fighting with PBMs and hospitals who are fighting with each other over who gets the money. Also, the continuing trend of brown bagging, especially as in the patient's home, gets tagged on the end of lots of care delivery like in bed gets tagged on the end of lots of fortune cookies. Next week's show, we'll dig into how exactly some providers are managing to get the up to 6x the cost of specialty pharmacy drugs when Medicare Part B at least says that they're only supposed to get ASP plus 6% ish. I just could not figure out how they were managing to get 6x just given that Medicare Part B rule. But yeah, they are. And we'll learn about that next week. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Keith Hartman, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate you having me on.
0: For a little bit of context, what kinds of patients or drugs is this relevant to, this whole concept of bagging?
1: G- generally, bagging is done with specialty drugs, you know, high-dollar drugs that require some type of special handling or they require some type of uh, special delivery or administration or storage administration, whatever it might be.
0: Somebody somewhere has deemed the drug too complicated to just get dispensed at a, a regular pharmacy. Therefore, the whole bagging idea becomes relevant.
1: That's exactly it. And, uh, you know, I think anymore what we're seeing is that, that it's more driven by price.
0: Which is not surprising. <laughs> so let's talk about round bagging, which is maybe the oldest form of bagging, but still continues potentially, but not always for care delivery that happens in the home. So what we're talking about here is when a physician writes a drug for some product that needs to be infused or injected, then that prescription goes to some specialty pharmacy. The pharmacy fills the drug, gives it to the patient, or if it's mail order, mails it to the patient. So now you've got this really expensive drug that's sitting in somebody's apartment lobby or gets stuck in the UPS truck is common, you know, if you get on Twitter and any day of the week, you'll hear stories about how something has sat in 90 degree heat in a truck or on somebody's porch, right? The patient gets the thing, mail order, and then has to take it back to the doctor's office or make an appointment, go back to the doctor's office with their little brown bag. And then the doctor takes it out of the brown bag and administers it. Like that's the short story of what's going on here.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. And back to your point of sitting in a UPS truck, we are the company I run. Is Continuum Rx is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and I can tell you, in August, it is extremely hot. We see mail order pharmacies shipping drug with no temperature controls, and you know, you take medications that are temperature sensitive, which many of them are, especially some of the the newer uh, biologics. You really have a a disaster, a, a substandard clinical outcome.
0: So this is clinically suspect, right? Like you just have to hear that or read a package insert for any of these drugs. And and we don't have to be a brain surgeon to realize that there's some issues. So what is white bagging?
1: The only difference between white bagging and brown bagging is that the product is now being delivered directly to the provider or administering facility, right? It is not being sent to the patient directly. It's being sent to the provider. And it's coming from a specialty pharmacy somewhere. It's not typically your local community pharmacy anymore. Doc may order a a particular product and the pharmacy delivers it directly to the physician's office. And it's labeled and in the name of the patient who it's being administered for. So it sits in the doctor's refrigerator or on the doctor's shelf at the doctor's office waiting for the patient to come in to have it administered.
0: And I think a big distinction here is in that ordering it from the pharmacy, what that means is the drug is going through the patient's pharmacy benefit as opposed to the patient's medical benefit.
1: That is correct. And when we talk about who are the key players involved in, in all of this, You have this push-pull struggle in the payers' world, whether these drugs end up on the medical benefit, which is kind of the buy-and-bill scenario, or the pharmacy benefit. And pharmacy benefit managers are there to control costs, air quotes around that, because it's probably the furthest thing from the truth. So when it's going to go through the pharmacy benefit, it's going to go to the pharmacy benefit manager, the PBM. They typically own their own specialty pharmacy, And oftentimes they have this network of specialty pharmacies that is pretty exclusive of five or six specialty pharmacies. But reality is they do it all themselves and they'll send the drug directly to the physician from their specialty pharmacy. And that way they can keep everybody out of the loop except themselves and the provider for the administration costs.
0: A PBM wants a specialty drug to go through them because rebates... (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if the physician buys the drug themselves and administers it and therefore it goes through the medical benefit of someone's insurance, then PBM certainly loses revenue, right? So PBMs want that revenue and physicians also want that revenue because they make a ton of money off of this buy and bill.
1: The buy-in bill from the physician's perspective, they certainly like that. They like to have the additional drug margin that's associated with that buy-in bill scenario. So from their perspective, they would like to keep that in-house. And from the pharmacy benefit manager's perspective, they want it being drop-shipped from their specialty pharmacy where they have rebates. My favorite specialty scenario is infliximab biologic, and there are multiple biosimilars, and we certainly can discuss biosimilars more, but there are different choices. And the manufacturer is likely contracted with the PBM to have a preferred infliximab product. So, then it's not a clinical choice of the physician which product or which biosimilar to use. It now becomes a decision driven by rebate dollars. And who makes the most money at that point? The PBM and the specialty pharmacy at that point.
0: Now, to be fair, some providers are making basically just millions of dollars That's true. off of administering these drugs and buy and bill. Some of them are becoming, some of these larger health systems are becoming quite sophisticated in how they drive revenue through a buy and bill revenue stream. Like this is not some, we make a couple bucks a year, good for us, rah, rah. This is a significant revenue stream for hospitals. And then what started happening was employer sponsors in particular, I mean, this is a big issue for Medicare Part B, which is why Medicare Part B spending is through the roof or one of the reasons. But as these health systems were kind of refining the art and science of making money off of buy and bill to a high art, employers started to notice and realize that they could cut costs, I think in half, if I'm not mistaken. Like you could cut infusion costs in half by white bagging, by forcing patients to white bag. So like as these health systems started to get really Do I want to say greedy? As the revenue started to really increase, then employer sponsors who are paying for all of this, who like can't afford to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars when they could pay half of that for these specialty drugs, you know, like employee premiums are going through the roof. If you can cut that cost in half as an employer, like you sort of have a fiduciary responsibility to do so.
1: In the health system scenario, I mean, they're certainly more lucrative, they're making quite a bit of money on, on these, and so are the physician-based models. They're certainly making plenty on, on these, and that's kind of one of the attractive uh, things that's dragging a lot of these practices into infusion centers.
0: Certainly, we're not talking about everybody here, you know, like yeah. there are certain institutions which are abusing their privilege.
1: That's exactly right. I can say that many of the health systems I work with and our, our our model is we're a joint venture partner with health systems. And I get to speak with many of the pharmacy operations people who are running these ambulatory infusion clinics for the hospitals. And 340B was, is really where they are focused. They utilize those ambulatory infusion centers and couple it with their 340B program. And that is a real profit driver for the health systems.
0: Yeah, sure. In fact, Adam Fine, there was a tweet the other day about this exact thing. And this is the Adam Fine tweet. He he wrote, Medicare Part B beneficiaries pay cost sharing based on ASPs. That's much higher than the 340B hospital's costs. So seniors shouldn't pay thousands of -of out-of-pocket dollars when mega health systems buy at a deep discount. Medicare Part B beneficiaries pay a percentage as their out-of-pocket cost. So they're not paying that out-of-pocket percentage based on (laughs) the price that the health system's actually buying it for. They're paying it based on the allowable. So all of that is affecting patients coming on the backs of patients. Sure. But let's talk about the patient view of this. There's two factors at play. One is the financial burden, but then the other is the administrative burden, and then also the clinical burden. When white bagging starts, how does this impact the patient's clinical care?
1: With white bagging, you have this now scenario where, where the drug's shipped directly to the, the provider. We have these specialty pharmacies that ha- are doing the white bagging fulfillment, and while they are fantastically accredited, as just about every pharmacy today is anymore, it seems, we find a lot of flaws in their timing, particularly with delays of shipment, which delays care, with incorrect product dosing changes between the time that the original order is written and the time that it's shipped. So there's a lot of of pitfalls along the way that can disrupt or delay the patient's care.
0: Couple that with what you had mentioned earlier about the selection of the drug being limited to in air quotes what's on formulary. So
1: Absolutely. Generally speaking, we can say that the biosimilars are the biosimilars, they're they're probably interchangeable for the most part. However, there are individual patients that are not going to tolerate one versus another. Particularly we look at at IV uh, immunoglobulins, IVIG therapies. Some have a a higher propensity for reactivity than others. If you've been challenged on one, then we try to stay with one. So you change payers on January 1st and you've been on one product and now they switch you to a different one and you may have a reactivity potential there. So there is certainly a, a concern.
0: What you mentioned earlier about dosing that changes, that actually is really important because sometimes the dosing is based on weight, for example. And if you're talking about oncology patients, like weight can fluctuate pretty significantly in a pretty short period of time. So you wind up with all kinds of consternating scenarios there where, you know, if the drug is ordered whenever it was ordered and then patient's weight fluctuates, now all of a sudden you've got the wrong dose and this isn't uncommon.
1: Not uncommon at all. And in, in fact, anytime we're using weight-based drugs, it's always a concern. And you know, say it's a five hundred milligram vial that's delivered, but we need to administer six hundred milligrams. Well, now we don't have enough. So now we're gonna have to make a decision on administering a substandard dose or delaying therapy. A concern that we would have with white bagging and, and not having the product locally controlled
0: and the other issue here is that when a pbm gets involved it, it also can limit the site of care so what the pbm will do is is try to push the delivery you know because they're sending the drug somewhere <laughs> so they say they're only going to send it certain places and that might not be the place that's necessarily most convenient for the patient it actually might not even be the place that is the lowest cost care setting for the plan sponsor right so like the plan sponsor is saving money on one in one area like they're not having to pay the exorbitant buy- bill but the PBM may be making up some of that by ensuring that the patient goes somewhere that is more profitable for the pharmacy benefit manager.
1: All you need to do is look at your stock market and see where the PBMs are heading every month or you know they're always higher 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 they're making more money every time we turn around.
0: yeah certainly and as you said earlier these PBMs do own specialty pharmacies. And they have a, obviously an interest, therefore, in where those drugs are, are dispensed. If you're a patient in this whole mix, like, you know, you set your appointment for next Tuesday to go get infused and then next Tuesday rolls around and either the drug's not there or it's the wrong drug or whatever, or the... Patient has to call the PBM and we hear, again, all kinds of patient stories about patients being put on hold when they're trying to call the PBM to try to f- get their drug and it's not the right drug and then they get, get put on hold again and the drug doesn't show up. No one knows where it is. There are certain cases where this whole process goes smoothly, but there's enough where it doesn't that it's kind of become a thing and driving up the administrative burden that patients have in this whole process. Very sick patients, obviously, if they're sick enough to get a specialty pharmacy drug.
1: Yeah. And that administrative burden to add to what you you said, if we have a dosing change, you may have an auth in place for a particular dose, but now the dose has changed. You've got to go back and change or amend your authorization. That can be further delays or they change products on you. And one product has a heavier auth process than another, and, and you have to go through that. Or or even probably more, <laughs> the concern I think is the step therapies that they require. We see this pretty regularly where a patient is you know, on drug X and successfully being treated, and then January comes and their health plan has changed. Now they no longer cover drug X or they cover it, but the auth process requires substantiated step therapies, meaning that we've tried this oral medication, this injectable medication before we can finally use this infused medication. So it's just there's those additional, as you said, administrative burdens that can really get in the way of the patient's care and delay their care.
0: For sure. I mean, basically, we're just introducing the same types of formulary controls that have existed on the retail side into the specialty pharmacy side. So from a cost perspective, as a plan sponsor, especially a plan sponsor who is addicted to rebates, as they say, and listen to the episode with Chris Sloan if you want to hear more about that. Like there is definitely an interest for plan sponsors and certainly PBMs to get involved in the mix here. Like specialty pharmacy drugs are a cash cow for everybody who can manage to get themselves in the supply chain at the cost of clinical care and then certainly administrative burden. I mean, there was just a study that came out that showed that I think it was two-thirds or three-fourths of patients who faced administrative burdens either delayed or abandoned care. So like this certainly has an impact, but so does financial toxicity, right? So like we were kind of trading off Administrative burden for the financial toxicity of letting certain health systems run rampant with the prices that they were, I want to say, gouging here to get out of patients when patients also abandon a lot of care because they can't afford it.
1: You're spot on in our experience. Really, the two leading causes of a patient not going on or maintaining their therapy, noncompliance, so to speak, are financial toxicity and administrative burden. I believe they throw so many roadblocks and look a lot of a lot of the roadblocks that they throw in the way with step therapy and things of that nature all are good intentioned to make sure that we are utilizing the right therapies first in order but we've got to leave some authority with our prescribers to be able to make a clinical decision of what's best for that particular patient locally when we run into all of these administrative burdens patients just quit I mean it, it really is a shame we see it every day and we try to hold their hands it as much as possible, but it is a frustrating process and it's a behemoth of red tape and problems for them to get through. And, and oftentimes they quit before they even get on therapy, which is extremely unfortunate. And then if they finally can get through it, then it's all not then the financial toxicity kicks in. Okay, maybe I can get through my initial treatment, but gosh, this is going to cost me this much every month, yeah. And then every year I've got to go back through the administrative burden because I've changed insurance plans, or they end up getting locked into a particular insurance plan with a toxic premium because they've got the authorizations in place. It's being covered.
0: And, you know, why did those premiums get so high? Oh, because of the exorbitant specialty pharmacy costs, right? So like you, you try to solve one problem, you create another one that creates another one, right? Like we've got this cascade of issues that are going on. All right. So white bagging, we have seen what has happened there. Let's talk about clear bagging.
1: So clear bagging is is effectively the same thing as white bagging. It's just consider where the product is coming from. It is coming from within the health system. It's a health system owned specialty pharmacy and it is being delivered to the clinic that is owned by the health system and it being administered and monitored in that environment. So everything stays within the four walls of the health system, so to speak. The benefits of that, there's this cohesiveness and and connectivity of all the providers and everybody's on the same page and communicating and working within one electronic health record. There's an efficiency there.
0: So with clear bagging, if the patient's weight fluctuates, it's no big deal to get a new order from the pharmacy because the pharmacy is on campus somewhere. You would suspect that the clinical outcomes or the administrative burden, maybe even, would be lower because the pharmacy is down the hall and you can easily just go there. Yeah. Sounds like health systems that are looking at the (laughs) marketplace as it stands and are like, whoa, my salad days of (laughs) buy and bill for some of these specialty drugs are coming to a close for at least some of them. So I'm going to get ahead of this curve. I'm going to open up a a specialty pharmacy on premises. I realize I'm not going to get paid probably as much as I might get paid if we just did the whole buy-in bill unfettered, but instead of me getting 100% of zero dollars because I can't do the buy-in bill because there's so many insurers that are clamping down or PBMs or plan sponsors, I'm going to open up a specialty pharmacy and run the drugs through that specialty pharmacy. And then at least I get a, a percentage of of a smaller amount of revenue, but a percentage of a smaller amount of revenue is certainly more than 100% of zero.
1: That's exactly the model that, that they're looking at. They're Trying to capture whatever revenue that is available in the system and keep it in the system is the the verbiage I hear over and over.
0: But let me ask you this. So if I am a giant PBM, and as you alluded to earlier, giant PBMs own their own specialty pharmacies. So how does a hospital specialty pharmacy get in network with a PBM when that PBM has its own network of specialty pharmacies and may not be super thrilled to have others? in there too.
1: I'll say that they actually struggle with that. That's not an uncommon struggle. The PBMs and health systems are at odds. PBM doesn't want them in the network because they take money out of their pocket. So th- there are struggles where their hospitals join PSAOs and, and contracting organizations or they're partnering with providers that are already contracted with the PBMs and maybe in network. They'll partner with a specialty pharmacy operating entity to run their specialty pharmacy for them who already has those contracts in place. So that's one way around it. The ones who try to run it on their own do try to get in network and, and they struggle. They'll get blocked
0: what percentage of them have a specialty pharmacy in the hospital? And then of that percentage, what percentage of drugs can actually get filled through them?
1: I don't have the the statistics of how many actually have a specialty pharmacy. I, I think that when you look at your larger health systems, they almost always have their own specialty pharmacy. Some of the smaller ones, which as you said that they're becoming few and far between, they tend to not. My experience with that is, is that they are hitting probably 70 to 80 percent fill rates, meaning 20 to 30 percent fall through and have to go out to a PBM driven specialty pharmacy
0: that's a pretty good percentage there. it's almost three quarters. In those scenarios, certain of the issues for patients administratively and then also for clinical care gets solved for with this clear bagging situation.
1: That's exactly it. And that, that's the argument that they, they make for that model is that it's an efficient model, clinically superior and the better scenario than a white bagging scenario.
0: Gold bagging. This is a new one.
1: Gold bagging is really clear bagging. They are terming gold bagging as it's the gold plan, the gold option for clinical outcomes because everything is remaining in the health system and has all of that continuity of care and communication and and all of the important things to make sure that a patient gets on therapy, stays on therapy and has a successful outcome.
0: Okay, so basically, gold bagging is a branding term yes. <laughs> that a health system may have come up with to describe their clear bagging operation. Yeah. What's your overarching advice here? There's pros and cons to this whole entire thing. You know, you just took the lid off the healthcare industry and you looked at the gooey tangle of machinery in there in which these huge titans of stakeholders are basically fighting with each other over who's going to take the revenue off the specialty pharmacy patient. I mean, like at the end of the day, that's what's going on here. Everyone's just fighting over who gets the cash. What do we do? Right? Like if we're thinking about this from an actual patient standpoint, or maybe even from an actual smart plan sponsor standpoint, one who really understands the rebate game and stuff, what do we do?
1: Outlook really needs to be what's best for the patient, educate patients along the way as well to, to help them understand what's best for them. I think that that's really the best thing we can do. You know, A firm believer that mail order has actually driven more waste and cost into the system. So this you know white bagging follows suit with that as well. Our own evidence from our own ambulatory infusion clinics that we operate, I mean, it, it is the cheapest form of care relative to a health system an outpatient uh, ambulatory infusion center at the health system because the infusion administration rates are lower in that model than they are in the hospital model. Now, home infusion can be a a form of care for patients, but Certainly from an efficiency model, the ambulatory infusion clinics in a community, the, the buy and bill model is going to be more efficient because you can have one nurse monitoring three, four patients at a time and infusing them all together as opposed to the home model where the nurse is driving from home to home to home, which is very inefficient use of a scarce resource in nursing that we already are dealing with, but certainly cheaper than the health system where the rates that they're being paid by the payer is significantly higher.
0: The second that someone gets administered a drug in the hospital setting, you have the, I mean, site neutral payments are a point of consternation for a reason. So it sounds like your advice is to make sure that whatever you're doing as a plan sponsor doesn't lock yourself or your patients into a one size fits all model. That there are different drugs and there are different patients and different patient populations and the focus should be really on outcomes. I mean, these are wildly expensive drugs. What sucks most is when all that money is spent and the patient still gets suboptimal results because the system or the operationalization of that system isn't oriented towards their needs. So it sounds like solutions should not just include various colors of bags, potentially, but also maybe controlling the point of care, but with better contracts. I would recommend that anyone interested listen to the show with Olivia Webb, who provides an amazing patient perspective about what this looks like, all of this looks like from the patient's point of view. Keith, do you want to just talk a little bit about Continuum Rx and the work that you do there?
1: Absolutely. Continuum Rx, we're we're primarily a home infusion pharmacy provider. We joint venture with Health Systems and we're the partner who takes patients who need infusion therapy that are in the hospital. We're the one who transitions them into the home care.
0: Continuum Rx.com? You got it. Keith Hartman, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today.
1: Thanks, Stacey. It's a pleasure being here. I appreciate you having me.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.